Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Why God by Pastor Sean Wood. Trying to give everybody a heads up to where we're going. Um, today we begin our Why series and uh, it is our aim through the Why series to answer some of the big questions of life. Uh, questions like, today we begin with Why God? And if God, then why Jesus? We'll progress to that next week. But maybe some questions like why suffering? Uh, a lot of people ask these questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, because that happens. We're going to unpack what the Bible has to say about that. Why, why the Bible? Why, why do we consider the Bible to be authoritative in our lives? Well, we're going to answer all those questions. But we aim to finish uh, in August. Uh, with Why the Rock, and that will be us presenting uh, the, the vision, so to speak, of why we believe we're here and why God has us here. So please stay for that. Uh, that'll be our partnership Sunday, but more about that as it gets closer. Uh, August the 8th, just pencil in your diaries, Dr. Stu Robinson, uh, COVID permitting, will break through the barriers of uh, Melbourne and make his way up here for a holiday, uh, concluding with speaking here on... August the 8th. We missed last year and we actually only missed him last year uh, by a small margin of weeks um, before the borders fell. But this year we have a great opportunity and hopefully he's able to join us. Uh, Him and Margaret, Stuart and Margaret. Let's pray and then we'll come around God's word. Father, today as we open your word, I pray that you'd open our hearts. Today, help us to answer some of the big questions of life. You are that answer. Help us to see that. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Louise Wilson, you have one job today. Please keep Rob awake. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, You look very comfortable there, Rob. (laughs) Very good. Now, before you're wondering, uh, what's the go with the apple? Uh, I'll get it out of the way. What's the go with the apple? It's all right. I've prepared a long sermon and I'm going to need a snack. Uh, (laughs) Halfway through, Brother Robert. Is that all right? I'm going to ask, uh, we're going to ask, we're going to answer the question, why God? Today, my hope and my prayer is to expose the somebody that lies behind everything. Um, And more about that as we work our way through. But I do have a question for anybody that's listening on YouTube and so forth this morning. And my question is this, why in today's world is God the crazy option? Why is it that because we believe in God, we're considered to be the crazy ones? I'm going to propose that it actually takes more faith to be an atheist today than it does to hold to the truth of the Bible and the person that it exposes. If you're an atheist today, you believe that the universe came into being from nothing, that everything came from nothing, and that everything is here because of a blind set of random process and chance. However, we live in a very regular universe. The sun comes up every morning, the sun sets every night. I know people will say it's actually the earth going, but have a look at the regularity in the seasons. Have a look at the regularity in our life. If there is so much random chaos... How can we observe and live in so much order? Today, I would like to present to you, I will work, it used to be five evidences and proofs for the existence of God. I've expanded it to six, which is why I need the apple. More about that in a moment. Six evidences and proof for the existence of God. 
solid reasons why we can say, I believe in the existence of God. Uh, I'm reminded of a story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson who decide to go on a camping trip. And after dinner and a bottle of wine, they lay down for the night and they go to sleep. And some hours later, Holmes awakes and nudges his faithful friend, Watson. He says, Watson, tell me what it is that you can see. And he says, I see millions of stars. And Holmes says to him, he says, yes, but Watson, what does that tell you? And Watson, the very deducive Watson, he says, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo, and horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes pondered for a moment and was silent, and he said, Watson, you idiot, someone has pinched our tent. And if we can, for just a moment, uh, have a little bit of sympathy for Holmes. Holmes had missed, Holmes and Watson had missed the very obvious that was before them. And I believe that so many people today miss the very glaringly obvious that is before us. I'd like to pose to you this morning six evidences and reasons why I believe in God. My hope today and my prayer is to stand, as we say in Tasmania, to stand flat-footed and tell you why it is that I believe in the God of the Bible. We're going to answer the question of why God this morning, and then I have a question for everybody in the room when we finish. If you've been a Christian here for 20 years, you might be saying, Pastor, you're preaching to the converted. Maybe we will see by the time I have finished. The first one I'd like to come to you with and present. The first evidence is one that I like to call explanation. Basically, what I mean by that is everything that exists has an explanation of why it exists. Let's take a, let's reduce it down for a moment. We're sitting in this wonderful building that God has blessed us with that will have three extra toilets in the very near distant future. But we, we are in this building right now and this building exists. Now, uh, I want you to do so. I don't want you to gouge the eyes out of the person next to you or anything, but just, just gently reach out and touch the person next to you because the fact of the matter is that either two possibilities are in play here. Either you actually exist or we really are all locked into the matrix and we forgot to take the pill. <laughs> but just like this building here, there's an explanation for everything that exists. I can give you the explanation that at some point in time they prefab the concrete sheets and some guy built it and constructed it and we could deduce and there is an explanation for this building. But everything in this universe and everything on this planet and everybody on this planet must have an explanation. I've got a confession to make and that confession is that I am a forensic science nut. I am just overwhelmed. I think it's profound how detectives can walk into a situation and deduce from what is in front of them what has happened, who done it, and why they did it most of the time. But in watching all of the investigations, I realise that they kind of follow a common path. Let's take an example for a moment. Let's say you're a detective. And the minute you walk into the room, you've been called to somebody who is dead. The minute you walk into that room, you find laying on the floor a body. And before anybody gets any ideas, I'm joking. 
But you find a body lying on the floor in a pool of blood with two holes in their back. And immediately you have two columns. You have an evidence column and you have an explanation column. You have to make observations and gather your evidence. And then you have to be able to explain those observations and that evidence. Now, immediately when you are presented with a body in a pool of blood with two holes in its back, immediately you know that this person didn't die by accident. Immediately you know that this person didn't take their own life. And you know that somebody else must have been responsible. And there's all this evidence in the room and you can't find an explanation. Why? Because that person's not in the room. This universe, this planet, as James Warner Wallace, a former cold case detective would say, is God's crime scene. Absolutely littered with evidence. And the only explanation for that evidence is outside of this planet, this universe. Somebody brought that in. Hold that thought for a moment. The Apostle John. For those that are studying, and there's a few in this room that are studying the life of Christ in the Synoptic Gospels, you will soon realise that John writes his Gospel for a very different reason. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, and so he, he speaks about the kingdom, and he writes about the prophecies, and, and Mark writes from the lips of Peter, but it's all to a Roman audience, and so it's all about power and deeds and and what Christ did. But by the time we get to John, he's writing some couple of decades later to try and rebut a lot of what had been said initially about Christ. And he writes to a different audience, a Greek audience mostly. Yes, they're Jewish, but they're also largely Greek. And these guys that used to sit around in robes, eating grapes and talking too much were what we call philosophers and Stoics. The the Apostle John writes his gospel to these guys and they were under and in search of what we call the ultimate explanation for everything. Because they could see patterns, they could see regularity, they could see the seasons, they could, they could see evidence, but they couldn't explain it here. More about that in a moment. But John writes to them and he opens his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The explanation for everything on planet earth and in this universe is God. That word, word, is the Greek word logos, and it means the ultimate explanation. What John says is, all you guys talk too much, I've found the answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate explanation. Brother Rob, I'm going to ask you to stand up and give me a hand here this morning. Now we're going to introduce the apple. This is my favourite analogy. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you answer the first question with the word supermarket... I'm going to cast you out in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Where do apples come from, Brother Rob? They come from an apple tree. Where do I get an apple tree from, Brother Rob? From an apple tree from a nursery. From a seed, Brother Rob. Where do I get the seeds for the apple tree, Brother Rob? From the apple is, is the answer you're looking for. Thank you for helping me through that. You see, I hold in my hand an apple and I'm trying to explain this apple. So I ask myself, where do apples come from? Apples come from apple trees. Okay, that's fine. Where do I get an apple tree from? Well, I get an apple tree from an apple seed. Awesome. Where do I get the seeds from? The apple. 
What am I saying? There's no explanation for this apple outside of this apple. The age-old question is, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I've got the answer for you this morning. It was God. Anybody want an apple? Brother Ross? Australia's looking for a couple of fielders, bro. (laughs) You could get a gig. (laughs) Evidence number one is the explanation for everything lies in somebody outside of this. Somebody must have been for space, time and matter, which we're going to cover in a moment. For all of that, somebody must have been outside of that to bring it into being. Evidence number one, explanation. Evidence number two, I like to call causation. Causation. uh, In the 1920s, there was a very interesting man by the name of Edwin Hubble. Most here will have heard of Edwin Hubble. Hubble's telescope, which is now named after him, he spent many a year at the Mount William Observatory. While he was there, he was actually noted for quite a few startling observations. First one was he was the first to discover that there were more than one galaxy, that there were galaxies, many of them, outside of our own Milky Way. Praise God. But he's, Edwin Hubble's in the time of Albert Einstein. And for anybody, by the way, uh, I'm not overly educated and and reasonably unintelligent. So if you're looking for facts and figures today, you're going to have to find a different book. But uh, Albert Einstein had just introduced his theory of relativity. But he was running away from the implications of what he began to understand was what he observed and what he suspected was the case was the universe is not static and eternal like we think it is. It's actually moving. He was running away from that truth. He was running away from the fact that the universe was moving in any way, shape or form because he knew that there was enormous implications. But he could run away for no longer than Edwin Hubble who Not only was he able to observe that the universe was expanding, but that it was expanding rapidly away from us at a rate of not something like 500 light years a second or something like that. And everybody said, so what? Well, the so what of that is, if the universe is not static, if the universe is not eternal and it's actually moving, which, by the way, there isn't a secular atheistic or Christian scientist or astrophysicist that denies this. And you press the rewind button, you come back to a point when the universe had a beginning. And why did that frighten Albert Einstein so much? Because if the universe has a beginning, in his mind, he knew it must have had a beginner. Please do not be frightened of the Big Bang. Uh, I do not uh, hold to Big Bang cosmology like many of the astrophysicists, but don't run away from that truth. Because the reality is, if we have the Big Bang, we have a big banger. And the, uh, the, <laughs> the Kalam cosmological argument simply states this, and it's a very philosophical argument that many have tried to rebut. It's very simple, it's very profound, and it's very powerful. It says this, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everybody in this room began to exist and you have a cause. In Tasmania, it's aliens and cabbage patches. Here, I've got evidence for that. (laughs) You knew where I was going with that, didn't you, Terry? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe, space, time and matter as we know it, began to exist. Those two are irrefutable. Number three, therefore, the universe has a cause. His name is Jehovah. 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Why is the world so messed up? For those that read the, uh, the pastor's comments this morning, I'm starting a fan club. I've got two people, me and the other person. But, but the reality is that this world is so lost because it's lost its beginning point. This world has no idea where they even began or where to begin, but the Bible clearly tells us in the beginning, God. Number one is explanation. Number two is causation. The rebut of that from the atheist is that the Big Bang, basically all of a sudden there was nothing and then there was something. Makes a whole lot of sense. I have found, just as a slight digression for the moment, I have spent much time speaking to atheists and people who rebut Christianity and I love having the conversations with them and I don't have a problem with it, but I have found that their objections are never reasonable, never logical and never rational. They are always personal. And what I mean by that is the argument against the Big Bang, the argument against the evidence for the existence of God, their arguments don't make any rational or logical sense, but they have a personal implication. So they run away from it. The third one, explanation, causation, and now number three, this one I really, really like, is information. We live in a computer age. Everybody will agree that we live in a computer age, and I'm not much of a computer buff. In fact, the ladies in the office will say amen This guy is not much of a tech-savvy kind of a guy. But this I do know. If I ask you in the room right now, um, I want my computer to perform another function right now, I know the answer for that generically is you have to input code into that computer. And I want you to hold that thought for a moment because this is why I cannot possibly hold to the theory, and it's nothing more than a very baseless theory of evolution. Why? Because what you, what you need to have happen in evolution is an enormous jump in capability and function in the living cell. And the reality is Stephen C. Meyer makes it very clear that that can't happen unless somebody inputs information, just like that computer. You have to input information into that living cell. If you want an organism to acquire a new functional structure, he says, you have to provide information somewhere in that cell. Whenever we have information, we have intelligence. Well, yes. <laughs> the parliament question time was everybody's first jump to there. I get that, of course. Let's, let's keep moving on. But uh, the interesting thing was that uh, one of the most astounding discoveries of the last century was in 1953 when Francis Crick told his wife that he and his colleague had discovered the secret of life. They would go on to win the Nobel Prize and his uh, friend's name was James Watson. Why? Because they discovered the double helix of DNA and what they discovered was that inside of every one of our living cells is a tremendous amount of information. And I love this. Why? Because that means somebody has put that information in there. Here's why I can't be an atheist today, because atheism says that all of this world, everything that we know, everything that we can touch, that's all there is to this life. That's the big question today in secular society. That's the big question today in our culture and in our day and our age. The the question that everybody's asking is, is there more to life than simply what I can see and what I can touch? 
one of the greatest evidences for the existence of God is when you look in the mirror. There is trillions and trillions of bits of information that make up you. The atheist says you are an accident. You came to, you came to being by random chance and process. My Bible tells me in Acts 3.15, speaking about Jesus, Peter said you killed the author of life. Now hold that thought for a moment. Here's, here's a book. <clears throat> imagine, uh, imagine, Brother Rob, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself. Imagine you're walking down the street and you've never seen a book before, but you see this one laying on the street. And you pick this book up, immediately you're going to begin to think, this has got some, this has got design, this has got shape. And that's what it was like with the living cell. But then what happened in 1953 was they did this. They opened the cell up and what they found was a tremendous amount of information, information after information after information. But what they also found was it was just like this book. It was very neat. It was very ordered. It was very calculated. And it was was like somebody put it all together. And the first question you would ask is, who wrote this? Who, Who put all this together? Has anybody ever watched Home Improvement? Tim the Taylor Toolman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've got Wilson. <laughs> yeah. We're going to build a fence. Thank you for somebody who reminded me about that. We've got the Wilson. Well, I watched an interesting interview with Tim the Taylor Tourman. I used to love that show. And I've got a deep appreciation for Tim Allen, who's got a building background. And he said, you know what? He said, when I look at planet Earth, I found out that it looks like somebody built the place. He said, then when I looked in the mirror, it looked like somebody had built me and I wanted to know who the builder was. The king of Israel was once quoted as saying, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Nobody is an accident. Everybody is a somebody to God unless... You are an atheist. So we have explanation. We have causation. We have information which must flow from an intelligence. Now we have another one. By the way, I'm, I'm offering six today. But there could be, we could be here all day for the evidence of the existence of God. <clears throat> we're now going to come, as we're leaving the information part, by the way, uh, kind of ties into the explanation part. We were talking about this the other day. Uh, There's a thing in biology called irreducible complexity. And I wasn't going to introduce this one, but I thought I would because it's astounding. What irreducible complexity means, because it kind of ties into explanation, is that you cannot have the part without the whole. What do I mean by that? A human being, actually, it's impossible for you to evolve. Why? Because if you're missing just the smallest valve in one of your hearts, you're not here. One of the greatest evidences for that is the giraffe. Now, the giraffe uh, has an enormously long neck. What an amazing animal God's created, right? Uh, but God kind of, I think God was having a bit of a yawn day because although he created this beast that could eat from the tops of the trees, have you ever seen a giraffe try and drink? I mean, they've almost got to go, you know, like to lay down and drink. But a giraffe has three hearts. It has three hearts because it needs them to pump the blood up the neck. But the giraffe has got a little bit of a problem. All that blood rushes to the top, and when it gets there, there's that much pressure, it'll blow its brain out the side of its head. 
except for a tiny little valve right at the back of the brainstem, which meters out the pressure. That can't evolve. And if it does evolve, how does that happen accidentally and randomly? It's illogical. It's designed. And that's, that's the last one, uh, not the last one, that's the fourth one I'd like to come to today, and that's called design. Everywhere you go, you will see design. This whole planet and this whole universe is designed and fine-tuned to an nth degree on a razor's edge. I'm going to give you an example in a moment, but just bear with me for a moment. Imagine, imagine you. Well, this is kind of on the front of everyone's mind at the moment because they're thinking about sending astronauts to Mars, but... Just imagine for a moment that a team of astronauts land on Mars, dressed in their spacesuits, they get out of their little vehicle, and they all of a sudden discover this, this bowl, this biosphere, in the middle of nowhere on Mars. Bear with me for a moment. Similar to what they did in the Arizona desert. And when they walk into this biosphere, they're able to take off all their gear because when they're in there, the habitat and the environment is just perfect for sustaining complex life. It's not long before wandering around this biosphere, they see this enormous panel with all of these dials and all of these settings. They control everything from, from oxygen to humidity. Yeah, Queensland's got that one. They, some, somebody <laughs> stuffed up the dial when they did Queensland's, right? But you soon realise a couple of things. Those dials have an enormous range of possibility, but you also realise that if one of them dials are just slightly out, it'll throw the whole biosphere out catastrophically. That biosphere is planet Earth in this universe. Everything is fine-tuned to an nth degree. There is design and everything balances on a complete razor's edge. Let me give you one example, and that is the force of gravity. I only give you this example because it's the only one that I can remember because everything blows my mind. But imagine right now, if we're standing where we are, that we could stretch a ruler from here to the edge of the universe in one-inch increments. Somewhere about the middle of that ruler would be the force of gravity and the measurement for the force of gravity. If you moved that measurement an inch either side, it would have a catastrophic effect for complex life in this universe in an instant. That is one of the constants that govern this universe that are balanced on a razor's edge and all of them are balanced on a razor's edge. It looks like somebody has designed them. Let me read to you a passage, one of my favourite passages from Job. When we look at these, I wasn't going to read this out, but I'll read this out for you. Job chapter 12, you can write this down or look at it when you get home. There is strong arguments that Job is actually chronologically the first book of the Bible written. But have a listen to what Job has to say, verses 7 down through to 10. But ask the beasts says Job, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, if you can catch them. Verse 9, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing. A little ruddy shepherd boy, when he was out tending the sheep, would look up to the stars and write Psalms 19 and say, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
We are uh, in the book of Job, by the way, the book of Job ends with God asking Job 69 questions, of which today, we, with all our scientific advancements, you know, we can put a man on the moon, we haven't yet put a man to the bottom of the ocean, we, we, have, all, we have space stations uh, lingering in space, but we can only answer 19 of those 69 questions that God asked Job. And the most recent one is, God asked Job, where do I hide the darkness? And it's only now that astrophysicists are realising that when we look into space, all the blackness we see is not empty void space, it is actually called dark matter. And it's like a fabric canvas that is being stretched. And if that is stretched too fast or too slow, it has catastrophic. The heavens declare the glory of our God. The next one uh, is, uh, we're going to move very quickly towards the end now. But this was the one that C.S. Lewis, by the way, for those that appreciate the writings of C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis would call himself the reluctant convert. He would pen the words that after looking at all the evidence, he says, reluctantly, I must give my life over to Christ because the evidence compels me. And of course, he would go into a love relationship with God. But the most compelling evidence for uh, the existence of God for C.S. Lewis was objective morality. This intrinsic law that seems to abide inside of each and every one of us. He, he would put it kind of like this. He'd say, you know, whenever you're in a playground and two kids are playing and somebody steals the ball, the first thing the kid's going to cry out is, that's unfair, give me my ball back. And immediately what he's declaring is that there is an objective law that is imposed that everybody understands, including the one that's pinched the ball. Let me give you an example. It's one that we may all be well accustomed to. <clears throat> Go back to 1940s Germany. World War II has ended and they have now rounded up all of the leaders that they could find anyway of the Nazi regime. They begin to put these guys on trial at Nuremberg and immediately they find that they've got a couple of problems. The first one is these guys get up on the stand and they say we were just following orders. Well, they soon dealt with that one. And the second one they said was, uh, hang on a second, we haven't done anything wrong because uh, everything that we did was law in our country. Hitler spent a long time slowly and progressively changing the law. That's why Bonhoeffer put his hand up early on and said, we're going to do something about this dude. Until it was too late in 1939 and we see that Germany uh, takes over the church and there's horrific consequences for all those things. However... We now have the United Nations, which flow from that time. The United Nations, basically what they did was they have basically set up an international law, which means that you are not free to commit genocide or any of those kinds of things under war. Why? Because it's internationally recognised, it's objectively recognised as wrong. We have an objective morality. We have an objective law. Every time, uh, here's one of the greatest arguments that an atheist has against the existence of God. They turn around and say, you want me to believe in this good God of yours? Well, how, mar- how come there's so much evil in the world? And they've committed two falsehoods right there. The first one is, uh, how can you pin this on a God you say doesn't exist? And the second one is, if you have a If you can declare something to be evil, you have a standard of good to measure it against. If you have good and you have evil, you have a law which measures that and you have a lawgiver. 
There are people who have travelled to the remote tribes in the Amazon and places in Africa where we think, you know, they never hear the gospel, etc., 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 but they have observed one very important factor. There is an intrinsic moral code that resides in all of them. It plays out differently. I get all of that. It looks differently to how we would understand it. But they said there is this intrinsic moral code, even in some of the remote tribes, which point to somebody from the outside. When Jesus came, you know, in all of our advances, with all of our medical advances, nobody can transform the human heart. Jesus came to challenge that problem when he says that from within come all of greed and pride and all of these lusts of life. The heart is the problem. We cannot have objective law without a lawgiver. I'm now going to ask if Karen could come and quietly play as we bring this to a close. I want to introduce you to the sixth one today. And I don't know where everybody is today as you sit here. You might be saying, you know what, I, I've, been, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Do you know, uh, for those that read the pastor's comments this morning, I have met people that have been on church pews for many years and are just as lost as the people out there. You can be lost in religion. You can be lost not knowing your way back to God. But the, the sixth greatest evidence for God, I believe, is that he can be known and experienced today. The psalmist says in Psalms 34, 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is insurmountable evidence for the existence of God. And this morning, I've only briefly, briefly touched on some of the logical and reasonable and plausible evidences for the existence of God. Well, next week, we'll, we'll look at the, the evidence for the why should we place our faith in Christ? But today, as we sit here together right now, I don't know where you land on that scale. You may be, you may be sitting here this morning going, you know what, I, I, I've always had these lingering questions, but I've never actually grabbed hold of and experienced this God for myself. And If that's you today, don't leave here today. You have that opportunity today. church is, is not a place where we come and adhere to a set of rules and it's not a place of religion I can remember somebody saying to me very recently even, I'm not very religious I said praise God, neither am I this is a place where we come to experience a relationship with the one that put all the information into your cells and knit you together maybe you're sitting here and you're saying you know what I, I, you're preaching to the converted this morning pastor I, I believe that God exists My question to you today before we leave here is, what are you doing about it? We have somehow along the lines between when the first church was born and where we are today, somewhere along the lines, we have taken black and white and molded it to make this kind of grey zone. We'll just, we're okay, Pastor. We'll just, we'll just float along and we can just come to church and we'll, we'll, we'll give our money and we're good people. But I want to ask you today, if this evidence is true and if you say you believe in God, what impact is it having on your life? In the Old Testament, we read about a king and many Israel had many kings, but although he didn't finish so well, there was a king by the name of Hezekiah. And what we read about Hezekiah that was different to so many other kings was he held fast to God. 
in those exact words, and I'm asking every person in this place today, will you take a stand and hold fast to God? It's time for the people of God to take a stand, to know what we believe and why we believe it. I want you to know that when you walk out of this place today, you're not the crazy one. It takes more faith to believe in atheism than it does the existence of a God that brought everything into being. I'm going to pray and finish this morning, but if if you need prayer this morning, if you need to do business with God, then we're here. And while Karen finishes playing, then we'd love to pray with you. So can we stand in God's presence today as we finish in prayer? Father, truly the greatest evidence this morning of your existence is the fact that you live and are alive inside of us. We don't serve a dead God. We serve one who has risen. You are alive. You are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You are the God who is the explanation for everything. You caused us. And I pray that every heart in this place would give over their lives in to you as Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you would cement a foundation underneath every single one of us, that we would stand firm for what we believe. I pray that affections for Christ would rise. I pray that faith would rise in each and every heart as we leave this place in the wonderful name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.